0: Well, hi, everybody. This is Bob Bro. Welcome to the Best Old-Time Radio Podcast. This week, again, we're doing an archive show. This is a Boomer Boulevard show, first broadcast on the 9th of October in 2017. Hope you enjoy it. It's
1: half past eight exactly, Mr. Dillon.
2: I better get it out of the safe now.
3: Let's go.
0: is a mosquito buzzing around me and it's driving me crazy thought I had it Did I get him? boy those things are elusive aren't they? hey everybody this is Bob Bro welcome to I ah, missed him again this is Bob Bro welcome to Boomer Boulevard this is the old-time radio program where we play shows we actually remember from when we were kids. Why? Because we're baby boomers. And these shows, most of the ones at least we play on this, on this program, came from the late 1940s, but mostly from the 1950s. Heck, we even have a few that came from the 1960s. And it's uh, no different tonight. We've got a great... I, excuse me, I'm distracted by that stupid mosquito. Ah! Got it. Oh, Excuse me, i got to go wash my hand here in a minute. But tonight we've got a great lineup. We have an episode of Dragnet. We have an episode of the Halls of Ivy, and we're going to finish things up with another one of the, uh, in my opinion, sort of iconic Gunsmoke episodes, because it gives a real history lesson. We'll talk more about that in just a few minutes. So we're so happy to see you on this October day. I don't know what it's like where you are. It's been in the 80s here they keep telling us it's going to get cooler but it ain't happening we've had kind of a rainy weekend but uh, hopefully we'll have smooth sailing ahead and i hope that's the case wherever you are so why don't you go get yourself something to drink pull up the easy chair get your feet up on the ottoman and sit back and relax because we're going to get started in just a moment In preparing this week's show, I was uh, looking for a particular episode of a, of a program that I remembered that I wanted to play again. It's the Gunsmoke episode tonight, entitled The Cue, and you'll you'll hear it later. And I went into my notes uh, from past shows, and I discovered that I had played it in 2010. And I also discovered two other shows I played on that same week, that same uh, program, I, I played Uh, an episode of The Halls of Ivy and I played an episode of Dragnet and I discovered that none of these have I played on Boomer Boulevard in the last uh, almost four years now. So I thought I did a number or a little bit of research on these shows. I thought there was some somewhat interesting facts I brought out. So rather than... Just playing them again and coming up with new comments, I thought I'm just going to grab these from back then and throw them on here. So that's what we're going to do. So, what you're going to hear tonight is three programs that I played in 2010, and the comments you'll hear before and after the programs are comments I made at that time. Now, I hope none of you are out there going, Oh, Bob, you just played this seven years ago. Well, I hope that's okay, because none of these are brand new productions, right? They're all old-time radio programs, but we have three good ones tonight. And uh, to start off, we are going to go down to L.A. City Hall and team up with Joe Friday and Frank Smith for an episode of Dragnet. Dum Dum is known to people the world over, and even though it hasn't been played in many years, and uh, new generations have come onto the scene that really probably have never seen or heard Dragnet, still that is a uh, theme that they're familiar with. Dragnet added a lot of cliches to our vocabulary, like just the facts, ma'am. And it really became part of the culture. At its height, it was one of the top-rated shows on the radio. It won awards from viewers, from critics, and even the mystery writers of America. In 1951 and 1952, it was the number one rated show on radio. A lot has been told about Jack Webb. I just picked up an interesting uh, tidbit here. In uh, October of 1957, a magazine entitled TV People interviewed Webb, and in the interview, Jack I apparently uh, admitted that he had actually built an apartment for himself into the building that was the headquarters for Mark Seven Productions. That way, he saved the commute, and he had everything he needed at hand to work any time of the day or night. I just wonder if uh, Mr. Webb was not a little bit of a workaholic. Here from 1954, April the 6th. This is Jack Webb as Joe Friday, and also features uh, featured as Ben Alexander, Helen Klebe, Georgia Ellis, and Vic Perrin. The story was written by John Robinson, and it's called The Big Saw. Here it comes.
4: Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent.
5: Dragnets.
4: You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a robbery detail. Two masked gunmen have held up a bank in your city. The victims can't give you a lead to their identity. Your job find them.
6: It was Tuesday, June 3rd. It was warm in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of robbery detail. My partner's Frank Smith. The boss is Chief of Detectives Thad Brown. My name's Friday. I was on my way back from the street, and it was 8.47 a.m. when I got to the rear of the bank, the manager's office.
7: I'm not a young woman anymore. I can't take this kind of excitement.
2: Yes, ma'am. You checked with them? Yeah. They got the broadcast out right away. Long shot if it pays off. Yeah. Not much of a description.
7: I hope you're not saying that for my benefit, young man. I gave you all I could. It was hard to see their faces with those scarves on. Maybe you could have done better, but I couldn't.
6: Well, we're not trying to say that you didn't do good, ma'am. We understand the handicap that you were under.
7: I should hope so. Terrible thing. I'm not a young woman anymore.
6: Yes, ma'am. Now, would you tell us just exactly what happened now, right from the beginning?
7: You mean starting when I come in this morning? Yes, ma'am. That's right. Eight o'clock, just like always. That's when I got here. Uh-huh. Opened the door with my key and came right on in. Little suspecting what was waiting for me. I tell you, I was pretty surprised when they popped out at me.
6: You didn't see them at first then, huh?
7: Of course not. You think I would have come in if I'd have seen him? No, ma'am. Certainly not. Never would have come in.
6: When did you first see the two men?
7: I came in and locked the door behind me. Rules say you got to lock the door. I did, and then I went back to the clothes closet to hang up my coat and umbrella. I
6: see. Go ahead.
7: Kind of silly, I guess, carrying an umbrella on a day like this, but I always do. Never know. Yes, ma'am. People always kind of smirk at me for carrying one, but whenever it rains out of a clear sky, they don't smirk then. I'm always the center of a crowd. You just bet you.
6: Yes, ma'am. Would you go ahead with what happened, please?
7: Well, I hung up my umbrella and my coat, and then I came out the main part of the bank, right out where those two assassins were.
6: And that's when you saw them, is that right?
7: Oh, no, they were cagey. They waited until I was away from the alarm system. They were real sly. I see. Go
6: ahead.
7: I walked out the tables. You know where the deposit slips are out in the center? Yes, ma'am. Out there.
6: Mm-hmm.
7: I walked out straight and up. Really isn't my job, but I didn't have anything else to do, so I thought I'd maybe just check and see if any of the points needed new nibs. I like a neat place. You know, all the slips in the right place, rotters all clean and new. Neat.
6: Yes, ma'am, I understand. When did you see the thieves?
7: As I was straightening up the counter. That's when they stepped out in the open.
6: Where were they, ma'am?
7: Over in the escrow department, hiding behind the desks, I guess. That's the direction they came from.
6: I see. Now, what'd they say to you?
7: The big one. He looked at me with his steely eyes and told me to be quiet and nothing would happen. Said to be just Quiet. I'm not young anymore, Sergeant. A thing like that can be a tremendous shock.
6: Yes, ma'am. Were both of the men together at that time?
7: I don't understand.
2: Well, did they both come out from behind the counter?
7: Oh, yes. The big one had a machine gun, and the other, the little scrawny one, had a pistol.
2: you're positive the big one had a machine gun?
7: Listen, young man, I've seen enough movies and television to know a machine gun when I see it. Don't you think I don't?
6: Now, about the pistol, was it a revolver or an automatic? What? Well, look here. Did it look like this, this gun of mine?
7: No. No, it wasn't like that. It was more the kind you see in movies. More mean-looking than that. Real mean-looking, kind of flat-like.
6: I see. It was an automatic then,
7: huh? Well, I don't know what it was, but it was real mean. And furthermore, I wouldn't be surprised there were real bullets in it. Not in the least.
6: All right. Now, after they came out from behind the counter, what
7: happened? They asked me what time the rest of the staff came in. Mm Mm-hmm. I told them, any time. That seemed to make them happy. Why say that? Because one of them, the big one, turned to the little runt and said... Just like clockwork. That's what he said. Just like clockwork. I'm going to tell you something. Sort of a clue.
6: Yes, ma'am. What's that?
7: These fellas been planning this a long time. They knew all about how the bank works. What time everybody comes in and all. They even knew about the keys. What keys? The ones to the bank door. They knew who had them. Uh-huh. First thing they wanted to know after they asked about the staff was where my key was.
2: you have a key to the vault?
7: No, not to the vault itself. Just to the doors in front of it. You know, the barred doors in front of the vault door? Yes, ma'am. To those.
6: Uh Uh-huh. Did you give the men your key?
7: I didn't have much to say about it. I told you, I think they might have had real bullets in those guns, and I wasn't about to make sure. Yes, ma'am. After all, I pay my taxes. Catching those fellas is your job, not mine. If you want to cash a check, I can take care of you. But I'm not about to go out and apprehend no thieves.
6: Yes, ma'am. What happened then?
7: You mean after I gave them the key? That's right, yes. They made me get off to one side of the front doors and wait for the rest of the staff. As they'd come in, the hold-up men would make them get into the closet in the rear of the bank, where I hung my umbrella.
6: Yes, ma'am. But they let you stay outside, did they?
7: Oh, yes. They had me right up in front, with those guns pointed at me every second. Every second. I guess they wanted me to act as kind of a decoy. Ma'am? Well, when the other people who work in the bank came up to the door, they could look inside and see me standing there. That way, I guess they thought there wasn't anything wrong. Came right in, like lambs to the slaughter. Next thing they knew, there was a gun in their ribs and they was locked up in the closet.
6: Mm-hmm. What time did the manager come in?
7: Poor Mr. Blanton. He's not well, you know. He's not well at all.
6: Yes, ma'am. We saw him out front.
7: Is he all right? He had an awful attack. Bad heart.
6: Well, they've taken him to Georgia Street Receiving Hospital.
7: Did they find his pills? What's that? His pills. Mr. Blanton had a special kind of pills he takes when he has an attack. Some kind of explosive. Always has them with him. Did the men find him?
6: Well, I guess they did or else they had the necessary medication with them. He's going to be all right. Just needs some rest.
7: I'm glad of that. Sweet man. Mm -hmm. Widower.
6: What happened when he came in? Mr. Blanton? Yes, ma'am.
7: Well, he was just about pulled right in off the streets. He just got his key in the door and they practically just yanked him right in. Right away, wanted his key to the vault door. You have to have both of them in order to open it. Both of them have to be turned at the same time. I see. They asked him for his key. At first, he didn't want to give it to them. Told him to get out of his bank and to stop the foolishness. Just like that, he told him. I thought they were going to shoot him, but they didn't. I think if it hadn't been for the big one, they would have. The scrawny one wanted to. Wanted to kill Mr. Blanton right in cold blood. Uh But the big one stopped him. Said to just get on with the job and get out of there. That's what he said. To get out of there. That's when Mr. Blanton passed out. Cold. Right on the floor. Attack. you want to go ahead? Well, I guess they just about had a fight between themselves over that. Oh, well, how do you mean? The big one really read the runt off. Told him he was stupid for making poor Mr. Blanton pass out. Said that now they'd have to wait for the combination of the safe. But I stopped that. How's that? I gave him the combination.
6: You told him how to open the safe? Certainly.
7: With poor Mr. Blanton laying there on the floor, all I could think about was them getting out of there. That's all that was important.
6: That's when they opened the safe, didn't
7: they? Yeah. Went right over to Mr. Blanton and got his key out of his pocket and unlocked the door. By then, the lock had switched off, and they just opened up the vault and went in. Cleaned it right out. Just scooped up the money and put it in a black bag and left. First off, of course, they locked me up in the closet with the others, and then they left.
6: Now, who turned in the alarm?
7: I guess it was Mr. Blanton. He was laying on the floor where he'd fell. I guess he came to enough to get to the alarm system and turned it on. Must have been him. Wasn't anybody else who could have done it. Mm
2: -hmm. During the time the men were in the bank, did you hear them using any names?
7: I don't think I understand what you mean.
2: Well, do they call each other by name at any time?
7: Not that I heard. Is it important? Well, it'd help. I didn't hear them use any, but if worse comes to worse, I can do something about it. Yes, ma'am. I've got a couple for them.
6: We obtained a complete description of the hold-up pair and a supplemental broadcast was put out. The crime lab crew came out to the scene and went over the premises for physical evidence. From their investigation, we found that the bandits had made their entrance through a rear window. They'd sawed through the steel bars and broken the glass. From there, they'd come in and apparently had waited for the employees to arrive. We'd ascertained from the cashier that both men had worn gloves, so there was no chance of getting any fingerprints. In the dirt on the alley pavement, Lee Jones was able to find several good impressions of footprints. These were photographed and booked as evidence. Because of their placement, it was more than likely that they belonged to the thieves. Also in the alley, he found several broken hacksaw blades. These were booked, their numbers noted, and a request sent to the manufacturer for the name of the store that had sold them. The other employees of the bank were questioned, and they verified the story and the description that we'd gotten from the cashier. The stats office started a run on the M.O. used, and the victims were taken downtown and asked to go through the mug books. They were not able to give us an identification of the thieves. That afternoon at 3.47 p.m., Frank and I met back in the squad room.
2: Hi. Hi. How'd the stats office do?
6: Well, I got the list right here, 18 possibles. Yeah, any of them look good? Couple. Skipper around? No, he went over to the inspector's office. Anything special? Well, I wanted to check with him on who's going to work with us on this thing.
2: We well, left word. Murph and Gaffney are with us. We can use Pinky and Stromwell if we need them. Is Murph around? No, I went down to R&I. He got a hunch this might tie in with a the heist they worked on last month. Same M.O., figured he might as well check it out. Well, as soon as he gets back, maybe he'll give us a hand with this list, huh? Yeah. How about the bank manager? Any word there? I called Georgia Street, talked with Dr. Sebastian. He said Blant has been released to his own doctor. Well, what kind of conditions is he in? Should be able to talk to him tonight. Guess it was a pretty bad attack.
6: Sebastian said he was in rough shape. Well, let's check out. We can tag Murph in the hall. Is Gaffney with him? He was. All right, let's go. You want to sign us out? Yeah. I got it. Robbery Friday. Yeah, he's here. Just a minute. For you, Frank. Okay. You want to take care of the book? Yeah. Who is it? He didn't say. He just want to talk to you. Oh,
2: Smith biggie Yeah, that's right. Huh? Yeah, sure we can. Yes, yeah, sir, we can right away. Mm-hmm. You want to give me that address? Uh-huh. Yes, yeah, sir. Okay, thank you. I have it. Yeah, right away. Goodbye. It's Blanton's doctor. Yeah. Says he wants to see us right away. Yeah, what about? Well, Blanton says he remembers that when the thieves left the bank, a customer came up to the door. Yeah. He heard the big one tell the other one to take off his mask. Uh-huh. The customer got a good look at both of them.
6: the office immediately and drove over to the bank manager's home. We talked with his doctor and we obtained permission to ask a few questions. Blanton told us that as the two thieves had left the bank, a woman passerby had noticed the bank manager's key still in the front door lock. She'd stopped and knocked at the door to notify someone in the bank about the keys. As she did, the two hold-up men had taken off their masks and passed directly in front of her. We asked Blanton if he knew the woman, but he said that he'd never seen her before. We asked if it was possible that she might be a customer of his bank. He said it was possible that he'd just never seen her before. He gave us her description, and we started to check with the bank employees in the hopes that one of them could identify her. None of them could. We got out a supplemental bulletin asking that the woman be picked up. In the meantime, officers Murphy and Rafferty had checked out the list of possibles that the stats office had come up with. All of the names on the list either had alibis or could establish that they were not near the bank when it was robbed. We checked all F.I. cards filed in the area without result. Frank and I checked out of the office at 12.18 a.m. and went home to get
2: some sleep. The next day, Wednesday, June 3rd, Frank was waiting for me when I got to work. Don't sit down. We got a call to make. Yeah? Marie Logan called. You remember the rental car agent out in the valley? Oh, yeah.
6: She gave us a hand on the identity of that young fellow that knocked over the liquor store out of Tilden and Methyl, wasn't it? That's the one. Well, what she got?
2: Might be nothing, but we ought to check it out. Uh-huh. Says there's a woman who hangs around the local bars mooching drinks. Never got a dime. Yeah? She came in to see Marie yesterday afternoon. Wanted to rent a car to drive to New York. Where do we fit in? She wanted to pay in advance. Yeah. Offered Marie brand-new $100 bills
6: From the statement we'd gotten from the bank, we knew that in the $34,000 the thieves had taken, there were several thousand dollars in $100 bills. Frank and I signed out of the office and drove out to the San Fernando Valley. At the corner of Valley, Hart Boulevard, and Dickens, we found Marie Logan's rental agency. There was a line of late model cars in front of the lot, and at the rear, we found a small wooden building. Frank knocked at the door, and we waited.
8: Yeah. Oh, hi, it's you.
2: Hello, Miss Logan. Miss Logan.
8: Hi, Sergeant, Mr. Smith. Come on in.
2: Thank you. Thanks very much.
8: I uh, sure hope I haven't brought you guys out here on a wild goose chase. Hope it works out.
2: All right, you want to fill us in?
8: Uh, this woman, named Betty Gallick. Hangs around the bars in the neighborhood, spends her time catching drinks. Real bum. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, why do you figure we might be interested?
8: A couple of times she's come in to rent a car just to use around town. First few times I was stuck. How do you mean? Checks. She'd pay the deposit with a check. Then when she brought the car back, she'd pay the bill by check. I see. Check it bounce. Then when I'd call her, she'd come in and pick it up and give me the cash to cover it. That was the only reason I didn't turn it over to you. She always paid up.
6: Mm -hmm. Now, this time she had the cash, though.
8: Yeah. Came in, wanted a new Lincoln to drive to New York. She was dressed like always. Cheap cotton dress, cloth coat. Even had the imitation leather purse. Kind of supposed to look like real leather, but as soon as you get inside ten feet, you know it isn't. You know what I mean?
6: Yes, I think That kind.
8: Mm -hmm. Well, anyway, when she asked for the car... I told her I couldn't let her have it. Said I'd been stung too many times before. Mm. So, right off, she said she wanted to pay cash. That's when she opens his crummy purse and the dough almost fell out. Must have had a couple of thousand dollars in there, maybe more.
2: Well, you said something on the phone about hundred dollar bills.
8: Yeah. She pulled out a couple of them to show me she could pay cash. I asked her where she got them.
2: What'd you say to that?
8: She said it wasn't any of my business. Told me as long as she had the money and a driver's license, I should ought to run the car. I thought I ought to check with you first.
6: Mm-hmm. Now, you got an address on this Gallic
2: woman?
8: Yeah. After I called this morning, I checked through the records. Got her home address and the driver's license number.
2: She got any friends you know of?
8: Just about on every bar stool where she hung out.
2: <laughs> I mean anyone special.
8: Oh, I don't know. I saw her a couple of times with the same guy in the place down at the corner. Hot days. I sometimes go down there for a beer. Mm-hmm. Well, I've seen her there with this one guy a couple of times. you know who he is? No, not his name. I've seen the two of them drive away together a couple of times. He's got a flashy convertible. Guess he drove it out here. What do you mean? The car's got a New York license plate. Oh,
6: excuse me. Yes, ma'am. Go ahead.
8: Logan Rental Service. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, I know her. Yeah. You sure about that? Sure. Okay. Thanks. Goodbye. That tears it. What's wrong? There was a rental agency in Hollywood. Called to ask me about Betty Gallick. Seems she gave me as a reference. Yeah. Came into their place and rented a car from them. Paid cash for it. Was she there now? No. She left for New York this morning.
6: We contacted the rental agency that had leased the car to Betty Gallick. From them, we got a description of the car and the license number. We put out a local and an all-points bulletin on the vehicle. We got in touch with the New York authorities and asked them to be on the lookout for the car. We got the Gallic woman's address from the rental agency and we checked out her house. We found nothing to give us any indication as to where she might have gone, but we did find a silk scarf similar to the one described by the victims as having been worn by the holdup men. We checked with the neighbors, but none of them could tell us where Betty Gallic had gone. Two days went by while we followed down every lead that turned up. The information from the crime lab was checked out, but it led us nowhere. The serial numbers on the hacksaw blades had come back, but when we talked to the store owner, he was unable to tell us who had bought them. Saturday at 12 noon, a meeting was held in the offices of Thad Brown. Members of the Federal Bureau of Investigation were there. They had agents working on the case, but they hadn't been able to come up with any more information than we'd gotten. 2.14 p.m. Frank and I got back to the office.
2: The chief was your man. Well, do you blame him? We haven't got very much. Well, it seems like every time we do get a lead worth anything, it goes to nothing. Yeah, well, it's got to end someplace. I got it. Robbery Friday. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We did.
6: No, yeah, when? We yeah, right. No, I'll be right down to pick it up. Yeah, thanks. Bye. Now, communications. They just got a wire from Chicago. Yeah. They picked up the Gallic woman. Betty Gallick had been picked up south of Chicago and held in answer to our communication. However, when she was picked up, she was in the company of two other women. They were identified as her sisters. We made arrangements to talk to her by long-distance telephone. As soon as we started to ask her questions regarding the bank robbery, she admitted being the driver of the getaway car. She told us that the theft had been planned by a man she knew only as Dean. She was unable to tell us any more about him. She went on to say that she'd met him in a bar in the valley along with the other two men. She identified these two men as Richard and Matt. She was unable to give us their last names or tell us any more about them. She did say, however, that Matt was from New York and that as far as she knew, he was there at the time. She went on to say that he was not with the trio when the bank was held up. We questioned her further, but she was unable to give us any additional information on the three men. She did, however, tell us that they had stayed at a motel located on Sepulveda Boulevard. She gave us the name and the approximate location. She was detained pending extradition in Chicago. Saturday evening, Frank and I drove out to the motel that the Gallic woman had mentioned. We rang the bell and waited. Yeah. Lights on. We got no vacancies. Police officers. We want to ask you some questions. What about? A couple of men who stayed here. Anybody in this
9: place who's got trouble with the cops has to get out. You tell me who they are and I'll throw them right at you. I don't want no trouble. Now, who are you looking for?
2: One of them's tall. The other's short. Named Dean and Richard. What about the last name? We haven't got that. Well, I
9: don't need it. I know who you mean. Yeah. Sure. Dean Franklin, Dick Norton. A couple of no-goods. They ain't here no more. You know where they are? I'm not sure. I think maybe I got an address in my desk. Come on in Thank you.
6: I'm Jim Allison. Well, it's Frank Smith. My name's Friday. What have the boys done? Just routine. We want to
9: talk to them. You won't tell me, huh? it will be better if we talk to them about it. I have it your own way. I don't want to get mixed up in anything. Those boys got themselves a bucket of trouble. I want no part of it. While I was here, they paid their rent and didn't cause much trouble. That's all I was interested in, as long as they didn't cause any trouble.
6: Yes, sir. How long ago did they leave? I guess about a week ago. I got it in the books. I can check it for you if you want. Yes, sir. We'd like to have the information.
2: Sure, I'll get it for you. Do they have any visitors while they were here?
9: A couple of guys come around in the morning, that's about it, though. Look like bill collectors. The boys never let them inside, used to talk on the porch. Mm-hmm.
2: The three of them move out at the same time?
9: No. Matt left a couple of days before. Said he was going back east. I think he had some kind of a job back there. They wasn't real chummy, you know. Kind of kept to themselves.
6: All right, sir. Would you see if you got that address where they might
9: be? Oh, sure. Forgot all about it. It's in the desk, I think. Always running into this kind of thing with a motel.
6: Yeah, sir. What's that?
9: Wrong people renting rooms. We got no way of checking on them. Seems like whenever somebody's got trouble, they pick a motel to have it, and it never ends. Now, let's see. Yeah, here it is. They left this in case I got any mail for them. Said just to send it on. Here you are. Thank you. It's a place out in West Los Angeles. Thank you very much, sir. I'm glad to help out. You can't tell me what this is about, huh? No, sir. It's police business. You figure you're going to have any trouble with them? Well, it's hard to say. It'll depend on how they want it. But if I was you, I'd take it easy picking them up.
6: Why? Because I know Franklin's got a gun. <laughs> obtained the license number and a description of the car that the suspects had driven. It was a late model convertible with New York license plates. Before we left the motel, we called R&I and checked the names Dean Franklin and Richard Norton. We found that both of them had long felony records. We talked to Captain Donahoe and had two more teams of men sent out from the office to meet us at the address that we'd gotten from the motel manager. From what we knew of the two men, taking them into custody would be difficult. Frank and I left the motel and drove out to the address in West Los Angeles was a one-story wooden building set well back on a weed-filled lot. A late model car was in the driveway. Ten minutes after we got there, officers Murphy, Rafferty, Meade, and Leitner met us. Murphy had brought two sawed-off shotguns loaded with double-aught buck and several tear gas grenades. The only chance we had of taking them in without bloodshed was to use the one element on our side. Surprise. Murphy and Rafferty went around to the street at the back of the house, and Leitner took the other. When all of us were in position, Frank and I prepared to move up to the front door.
2: You all set? Just a minute. All right, let's go. I don't see anything. Well, they
6: might have seen us. You better take it easy. Right. All right, let's make it for the porch. Yeah. Come on. You okay? Yeah. All right, now I'll take the door when we get inside. You go to the left, I'll handle the right side. Right. You know what Yeah. Now. How about it? Nothing. Place is empty. We searched the house, but we found no trace of the suspects. From the clothing in the closets, we figured that they had not moved out. And going over the house, we found a machine gun hidden in one of the bedrooms. The cartridge clip was loaded, and the gun was ready for use. We pulled the clip, called the office, and told them where we were. Then we settled down to wait for the suspects to return. Murphy and Rafferty covered the rear approaches to the house. Mead and Lightner were in cars parked down the street, and Frank and I waited in the front room. At 10.46 p.m., the phone in the house rang three times, and then it stopped. We waited for Franklin and Norton to come back. 11 p.m., 11.30, still no sign of him. Started to get cold in the house. Midnight, 12.30, the phone rang again. 12.45, from down the street we heard a car approach. Joe? Yeah. You see anything? Just a minute, pull that curtain back. It's yeah. a Ford sedan coming down this way. Uh-huh. It's pulled into the driveway. Wait a minute. That's them. Just the two of them? Near as I can tell you they're getting out of the car. Yeah. How about Lightner and me? Yeah, they see them. They're starting to get out of the car down there. Better cover the door. They're coming in. Right. Police officers, stand still.
9: Run, big Get the other one, Frank. Hold it up. Hey, Lightner, he's coming at you.
10: No. Hold it up. Be him, Frank.
6: All right, Franklin, turn around.
9: How'd you get to us? Who told you? Put your hands behind you. Who told you We were here. Somebody had to tell you. You'd never have got us without somebody tipping you. It was that lush Betty, wasn't it? It was her that told you. All right, outside. Come on, move. Had to be her. She was the only one that knew. Had to be her. You'd never have made
6: it without her. You're wrong. Huh? We'd have made it. Come on.
5: The story you have just heard is true. The names were changed to protect the innocent. On November 14th, trial was held in Department 92, Superior Court of the State of California in and for the County of Los Angeles. Dean Roger Franklin, Richard Henry Norton, and Betty Elaine Gallick were tried and convicted of robbery in the first degree. Robbery in the first degree is punishable by imprisonment in the state penitentiary for a period of from five years to life. Further investigation showed that Matthew Arthur Ross had no part or knowledge of the crime. You have just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police, W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. Technical advisors, Captain Jack Donahoe, Sergeant Marty Wynn, Sergeant Vance Brasher. Heard tonight were Ben Alexander, Helen Klebe, Georgia Ellis, Vic Perrin. Script by John Robinson. Music by Walter Schumann. Hal Gibney speaking.
0: From April the 6th, 1954, that was The Big Saw, as heard on Dragnet. You might have noticed uh, some of the supporting cast there included were Helen Klebe and Georgia Ellis. Georgia Ellis, of course, played Kitty on Gunsmoke. Helen Klebe was a venerable actress. She was born in South Bend, Washington in 1907. She began her career in 1928 in Portland, Oregon, and for five years she worked with the Henry Duffy players on the West Coast. But then the Depression hit with a vengeance and she couldn't get stage work. So in 1933, she began to work in radio in Portland. In 1937, she was married in San Francisco and she remained there working in radio until the death of her husband in 1950. She was remarried in 1958 and stayed with her second husband for the rest of her natural life. But in 1950, she was faced suddenly with the responsibility of running a home and raising a 10-year-old son. And so she moved to Los Angeles, where she began a TV and film career that was indeed very, very prolific. You heard her in many radio shows. She appeared in uh, many episodes of the major uh, L.A. shows in the 50s. She also had a lot of early TV credits, among them uh, several episodes of I Love Lucy those Whiting Girls, Lux Video Theater, Loretta Young Show, Alcoa Theater, The Gale Storm Show, many, many early TV shows. And, I mean, she just has so many credits you couldn't possibly read them all. She also has a number of, of uh, movie credits, probably 15 or 20. Some of the more famous ones were The Hallelujah Trail, Friendly Persuasion, The Desperate Hours. She was credited with six TV episodes of Dragnet between 1952 and 1958. But for all the things that she did, she is obviously best remembered as Emily Baldwin, one of the Baldwin sisters on the great uh, CBS show that was created by Earl Hamner, entitled The Waltons. And she was credited with 65 episodes of The Waltons from 1972 to 1981. In fact, her last... um, Her last screen credit was uh, for an episode of the Waltons. Well, actually, it was a a special, a Walton special. And that last one was in uh, 1997, I believe. Yes, the last credit was 1997 for a Walton Easter. Do you remember the the Baldwin sisters on the Waltons? The Waltons was a real joy and a magnificent tribute to Earl Hamner. It was a great show about, uh, really, it was autobiographical of Earl Hamner growing up in Virginia during the Depression years and having a large family and the joys and and the the problems of being a large family, especially during tough economic times. About the Baldwin sisters, Earl Hamner once wrote, Down on Route 6 between Esmont and Scottsville, there lived two ladies who made an elixir that they referred to as their papa's recipe. They were proud of their product, and whenever anyone would sample it, they would lean over, watch them, and anxiously wait for a reaction. Was it smooth enough? Had it been a good batch? Is the recipe machine working? Hamner said, I wasn't old enough to sample the recipe, but my father and uncle stopped there quite often, and they seemed to find the recipe much to their satisfaction. It was from these personal collections that Earl Hamner created the characters of Miss Mamie, and Miss Emily Baldwin. Helen Klebe left us on December the 28th, 1903, in Los Angeles at the age of 96. listening to that just takes me back to the 1970s and watching television. I I think that would have had to have been about 1973 or 4. The theme from the Waltons. Do you remember this one from Loggins and Messina? Oh yeah, The House at Pooh Corner.
11: Christopher Robin and I walked along Under branches lit up by the moon Posing our questions to Owl and Dior As our days disappeared all too soon But I've wandered much further today than I should And I can't seem to find my way back to So help me if you can. I've got to get back to the house at the corner by one. You'd be surprised there's so much to be done. Count all the bees in the hive, chase all the clouds from the sky. sky. Back to the days of Christopher Robin and who. Doesn't know what to do. Got a honey jar stuck on his nose. He came to me asking help and advice, and from here no one knows where he goes. So I sent him to ask the out if he's there. Out loose loosen a jar from the nose of a bear. So help me if. The house at call by one, you'd be surprised there's so much to be done, count all the bees in the hive, chase all the clouds from the sky, back to the days of Christopher Robin and Pooh. Surprise, there's so much to be done. Count all the bees in the hive. Chase all the clouds from the sky. Back to the days of Christopher Robin. Back to the ways of Christopher Robin.
0: episode of Halls of Ivy coming up. June the 7th is D-Day. Oh, I thought that was June the 6th. Well, June the 6th is D-Day, but June the 7th is a second D-Day. When Victoria discovers that in Toddy's calendar, she wants to know what it means. But for the life of the professor, he can't remember. And so they go on a journey of discovery, trying to figure out what Todd meant when he wrote himself the note Second D-Day. Here we go. This is The Halls of Ivy as originally heard on NBC back on June the 7th, 1950.
12: Ladies and gentlemen, the Jaws of Schlitz Brewing Company of Milwaukee, Wisconsin presents The Halls of Ivy starring Mr. and Mrs. Ronald Coleman.
13: I was curious. I tasted it. Now I know why Schlitz is the
9: largest selling beer in America. No wonder it's the beer that made Milwaukee famous. And
12: now,
11: the Halls of Ivy. We love the Halls of Ivy That surround us here today
12: Welcome once more to Ivy. Ivy College, that is, in the town of Ivy, USA. It's an exceptionally warm, lazy, hazy Saturday morning, and most of the college staff members who live on faculty row are using the sun and their free time to excellent advantage. Professor Quinn Cannon is trimming a hedge. Professor Warren is transplanting some flowering quince. Professor Heeslip is weeding his lawn. And Dr. William Todd Hunter Hall, Ivy's president, is upstairs in his bedroom, asleep. Now his English ex-actress wife, Victoria, cautiously enters the room.
14: Toddy. Toddy. Hmm? Are you awake? No. But you just answered me.
13: Uh, What did I say?
14: You said you weren't awake. Uh, You may consider that statement as
13: absolutely correct. I'm not awake.
14: Then what were you lying there giggling for?
13: I've just been deprived of what might have been a most interesting dream.
14: Oh, what was your dream? it's, It's a personal question, I know, but you were smiling so contentedly just before you woke up that I was a little suspicious.
13: Your suspicions are completely justified, my dear. As I remember, I was standing on a verdant hillside, basking in the warmth of the sun, when I glanced up, and saw a bewitching, provocative maid with flaxen hair advancing towards me with an armful of, of flux.
14: The brazen hussy. <laughs> what happened then?
13: Then disaster. I was awakened.
14: It's a good thing. I will not tolerate my husband dreaming of other women.
13: <laughs> other women? <laughs> Why, Vicky, my darling, the, the maid in my dream was you. And what a delightful picture you made. And that flux. Where did you get that flux?
14: Where did I get that flaxen hair? That's <laughs> the whole is the question. <laughs> Which
13: I refuse to answer on the grounds that it is unfair, unethical, and uh, because I have no answer. Now, why do you come stealing into my room to rob me of my slumber, my flower?
14: Well, don't you remember? It's D Day.
13: Vicky, it is not D Day. That was yesterday.
14: Yeah, I know, I know. But you have a big red ring around today's date. And it, right below it is written, Remember, another D-Day. Start early.
13: I made that notation?
14: But it's in your handwriting.
13: Well, must be a forgery. That start early phrase is completely out of character for me. <laughs> I don't like to start things early. I temporize, delay, fidget, procrastinate and then do things in a rush at the last minute, muttering that I work best under pressure. Which I don't, of course. (laughs) At what time is
14: it? Oh, it's almost nine.
13: Mm, D-Day. Dedication Day. Victoria, is there any special function going on at the college today? One that I might have forgotten?
14: No, dear, I'm quite sure there isn't.
13: Hmm. Well, there's no point in worrying about it.
14: Well, it probably didn't mean anything
13: d-day when's my next appointment with the dentist next week that's good how's the weather it
14: couldn't be more perfect yeah which reminds me i wish mr weatherby called he asked if he could drop by a little later this morning weatherby weatherby i told him you'd be delighted to see him
13: well that was a gross untruth i'll see him but i refuse to be delighted Did he happen to say who he is and what he wants?
14: He's the father of Philip Weatherby, one of the students. He's up here visiting his son, and I think he just wants to see you. Hmm.
13: All right, Vicky. I think I'll have breakfast.
14: Well, good. It's much too nice a day to sleep.
13: That is a fallacy. There is no day so nice that sleep isn't nicer. (laughs) Yes, today I shall take mine ease in mine inn. To quote loosely from Shakespeare, who must be quite used to it by now... (laughs) As of now, I have completely amputated ambition from my schedule.
14: Mm. The day. The the doctor declines to disturb his day with drudgery.
13: (laughs) Denunciation day. Hmm. Doomsday. Dog day. (laughs) Victoria, I am completely baffled. I have delved into every possible combination of words that start with D and go with day. Oh,
14: Toddy, forget it. I thought you weren't going to worry over that notation.
13: Oh, I'm not worried. I'm curious. I wonder if it might concern a donation. Well, isn't it early for callers?
14: Mm, It's probably Mr. Weatherby. If it is, do you want to see him alone?
13: Oh, good heavens, no. I don't want to see him at all. But if I must, I...
14: Oh, dear, I'll show him in.
13: Let me see. Derby day. (laughs) Diabolic day. (laughs) Democrats day.
14: Yes, Mr. Weatherby.
13: How do you do, sir? It's a pleasure.
14: Will you have some coffee?
15: Uh, No, thanks. I'm a farmer, Mrs. Hall. Early to rise, early to eat.
13: (laughs) I uh, hope this isn't too early to call. No, indeed, Mr. Weatherby. I am an early riser myself. <laughs> I wanted to speak to you about my son if you can spare me the time. Plenty of time, Mr. Weatherby. Come into my study. We'll be more comfortable there.
15: just about winds up the story, Doctor. It wasn't easy to give Philip a proper education, and all I want is for him to amount to something. Is that too much to ask for a son?
13: No, I wouldn't say so. It's a rather common request among parents.
15: As far as I'm concerned, Doctor, it's more than a request. It's a demand. Philip has a good mind, and I won't allow him to let rot while he breaks his back on a farm.
13: Some fairly agile-minded men have been farmers. Abraham Lincoln, for instance...
15: Abe Lincoln was also a lawyer, doctor. Philip is studying law. That's a real profession. Farming isn't a profession, it's an obsession. Even if you want to escape, you can't. It's got you, doctor.
13: Ah, but look at what it gives in return.
15: Yeah, it gives you about six feet of itself for a final
13: resting place. I don't want it for Philip, do you see? Oh, yes, Mr. Weatherby, I do see. And it must have taken great determination for you to to have labored hard at the work you loathed, to give your boy an education? I'm not complaining about that, but you see,
15: he sent me a wire, doctor. That's why I'm here. Oh? He said he had something to tell me. When I got here, he said everything was all right after all and for me to forget it.
13: Well, then I would advise you to do just that, Mr. Weatherby.
15: No. No, something is wrong, doctor. I know my son.
14: hear
13: him go? Yes, he asked me to say goodbye to you, darling, which I will now do with a kiss, thereby exceeding my instructions quite agreeably. Hmm. There.
14: Well, thank you, Mr. Weatherby. <laughs> Vicky, <clears throat> um,
13: do you know Philip Weatherby? Has he ever been here at the house?
14: Not that I know of. Why?
13: Now, something is evidently troubling the boy, and his father can't get to the bottom of it. I told him I would see Philip and, if possible, ferret out the difficulty. Will you remind me, Monday? Hmm,
14: I'll make a note of it now. This is D-Day. We'll make Monday W-Day for Weatherby.
13: That's right. You know, Victoria, sometimes it frightens me when I think of the sacrifices parents make to put their young through school. Now, this this man digs down in the soil, he... he... Vicky.
14: What is it?
13: The soil, that's it. How could I have forgotten? Today is D-Day, Dahlia Day.
16: <laughs>
13: today is the day I plant my dahlia bulbs
16: oh, you?
13: Of course, me <laughs> Dahlia day is an old custom in the Hall family It dates way back to last year
16: <laughs>
13: Now, let me see I, I believe the bulbs are down in the cellar
14: I thought you were going to rest today
13: My dear Victoria, the good fresh air The thud of spade against sod The pungent odor of newly turned earth. These things all provide their own form of relaxation.
14: A likely story.
13: Ah, yes, it does a man good to work outdoors. It gives him a chance to breathe. To develop muscles.
14: To develop backache.
13: (laughs) It takes a great deal of time and care to do this job right. No half measures. No
14: cutting corners.
13: That's right, no cutting... Oh...
14: Now what,
13: Young Weatherby? I just remembered who he is. Philip Weatherby cut his last class yesterday. Monday he's going to be expelled.
14: Oh no!
13: Yes. Apparently Farmer Weatherby has just had a crop failure. <laughs>
11: surround
12: us here today. Now, back to Ivy, where we find Doctor and Mrs. Hall out in their own backyard, busily engaged in affairs of the soil. There. That should be enough for the
13: trowel. Now, uh, Vicky, do you have a ruler?
14: You don't need one, Doctor. You're every inch a gardener. But, <laughs> here you are.
13: Thank you. Don't be facetious, young lady. It's a serious business. We dahlia growers take a great deal of pride in our work. <laughs> dahlia growing is a man's hobby. A woman just doesn't understand the...
14: Maybe not, but a woman's hobby is man, especially when that man is her husband, and most especially when he's been kneeling on the damp ground for over an hour in an attitude of prayer, which will probably be answered with arthritis. Rheumatism, housemaid's knee. Uh, Vicki, please, well... please, 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 please. <laughs> just why have you been poring over that hole?
13: This, this hole, as you call it, is the aperture where the tuber rests. It should be no more, no less than six inches deep. Now, let's see by actual measurements just how closely I, I hit it. I'll take that ruler and we'll just...
14: Doddy, you did it! That hole is exactly six inches.
13: Oh, my dear, it was nothing. It merely takes a practiced eye, a steady hand, and, uh, and a trowel with a six-inch blade.
14: <laughs> I'm proud of you. That's quite a trick.
13: Oh, no, no, no. no. The, the trick is to repeat this gargantuan feat at several properly spaced intervals.
14: Do you mean you've got to dig some more?
13: Oh, certainly. This gaping earth wound is only sufficiently large for one tuber. I have four dozen.
14: Oh. Um, Vicky,
13: you do like them, don't you? Dahlias?
14: Well, I, um, uh, William, uh, I'm beginning to realize that this may well ruin what has been a perfect marriage. But I'm afraid that if one came up and threw itself at my feet, I couldn't call it by name.
13: You mean that you're not familiar with this beautiful flower?
14: To put it briefly, Doctor, yes, I'm not.
13: Well,. Despite the fact that you've just committed a grammatical outrage by using a positive with a negative. Oh,
14: should I have said yes? I am not.
13: Um, you're, you're only making it worse, my darling.
14: Yeah, well, well, let's talk about dahlias.
13: Well, uh, there are several thousand varieties to choose from. They grow in size from dwarfs to giant six footers. They get impatient to take root at the first sign of maturity. They are heavy feeders. And not the least bit fussy about the soil.
17: Say, that's pretty good, Doctor. Uh, eh?
13: Oh, what's this?
17: Here I am, sir, over by the fence. Mind if I come in for a minute?
13: Well, I... Uh, not at all. Uh, the, the gate's over there.
17: Oh, I don't need the gate. I'll just vault over. Hi, Mrs. Hall. Hi.
14: Where did you come from?
17: Oh, I was just going by. I saw you and Dr. Hall out here and I, I was just curious. Doctor, do you mind if I ask, what are you doing?
13: I'm planting dahlias, young man. On this side of the house? What's wrong with this side of the house? Is there some superstition about it? Like planting potatoes in the dark of the moon? (laughs) Not enough sun. Dahlias thrive on it. Now you take the other side of the house. I have no intention of taking the other side of the house. The soil is too poor. Well, they're your dahlias. I'm of that opinion, too.
17: (laughs) But if they were my dahlias, I'd plant them on the other side of the house. Indeed. If the soil isn't so good, you can fix that in a hurry. I
13: can, can I?
17: Sure. Just take a couple of handfuls of bone meal and work it into the ground. About two feet around the spot where each tuber will be planted ought to do it. Is that so? Well, sure. Come over here. I'll show you. Say, who takes care of this yard anyway?
14: Hmm. Have a gardener who comes once a week?
17: Well, I wouldn't call him a gardener, Mrs. Hall. Look at the prunola vulgaris. What are you going to do about that, doctor?
13: Well, I like the sweet, them. Um... <laughs> um, uh, Victoria, uh, suppose you tell the young man what we are going to do about the the Prunella vulgaris.
14: We're going to get rid of it. (laughs) See, young
13: man, my wife is quite an authority on gardening matters. Yes, she is, doctor.
17: I'm just surprised that she hasn't gotten on that gardener's tip. I'm surprised she hasn't had him do something about
13: it.
14: That's a
17: killer weed. It'll choke out your lawn. It ought to be sprayed.
14: Yes. I was just telling my husband he ought
13: um, to go... Uh, Victoria, uh, yours may be just a chance, Laurel, but I would suggest that you rest on it, my dear.
17: <laughs>
16: <laughs>
14: well, maybe, maybe you're right. I think I will. Have you any more suggestions, young man? Well, I... No,
17: I guess I've made too many already. Oh,
13: not at all. You've been most helpful. Um, You you appear to know a great deal about all this.
17: Oh, I I dabble around in it. I take care of a few yards in town. gives me a chance to get my hands in the dirt. I I like to make things grow. Someday I'd like to have my own farm. Oh, not a big one, just enough land to grow some fruit, maybe some vegetables.
14: Uh, Are you in the school of agriculture, Mr... Uh...
17: Weatherby, Mrs. Hall, Philip Weatherby. No, not agriculture. I was in the school of law.
13: I still don't understand, um, Philip, why you allowed yourself to get in this predicament. If you had discussed the matter with your faculty advisor, he could have approached your father. This uh, situation could have been helped.
17: I don't think so, Dr. Hall.
13: Here, let's uh, sit down in the shade while Mrs. Hall is getting us something to drink. Yes, much better. Now, why don't you think so?
17: You don't know my father, Doctor. The minute I mention ag school, he, he... Well, you just don't know.
13: Oh, I think I do know. Your father has his heart set on your becoming a lawyer. Isn't that right?
17: Right. When I was a little boy, he used to introduce me as my son, the future lawyer. All my life, I've
13: heard nothing but law. Well, he seemed to me to be a very sensible man.
17: Do you know my dad, Dr. Hall?
13: Yes, I do. He was here earlier today. He came because he was worried about you.
17: Yes, sir, I know. How, how did he take the news?
13: What news?
17: About my getting the boot, expelled. Oh, I would have told him myself, but I didn't have the nerve.
13: Philip, I didn't tell your father.
17: You didn't? Why not, doctor? He'll have to know.
13: Well, frankly, at the time he was here, the fact had slipped my mind. And, to be perfectly honest, I'm glad of it. You are? Yes, I... I think I see a way to solve this problem... If you're willing to take an entrance examination...
17: To get back in law? No, thank you, doctor.
13: No, not in law. In the School of Agriculture. Are you willing? Am I? Oh, brother! In a sense, it would mean starting over. Do you think I mind that, Dr. Hall? Why, I... I...
17: Oh, what's the use? It won't work. If I studied to be a farmer, it would kill my father.
13: Well, perhaps I can do something, Philip, to persuade him... At any rate, I'll do my best. I'll call him right now.
15: Don't go on, Dr. Hall. I won't listen to it.
13: Well, I'm very sorry about that. It leaves me no other cause than to... to expel him.
15: There are other schools, Dr. Hall. Yeah,
13: that's quite true. However, Phillips Marks will hardly serve as a passport into any school. There are standards.
15: He can be tutored. This agriculture stuff is just some crazy kid idea that he's going to be a lawyer.
13: Mr. Weatherby, I've been in what you might call the education business for a long time. I've seen literally thousands of youngsters suddenly come to a realization that they are headed the wrong way. And then make new starts. Your son, Philip, is one of them. One of the lucky ones. One who has, as they say in the ministry, heard the call. I think your son is a dedicated man. I doubt if you can erase the dedication.
15: If I don't, it won't be because I didn't make a stab at it.
13: He thinks farming is high
15: adventure, romantic. I've tried it, and I know he's wrong. I missed out. I don't want him to.
13: Would you care to explain how you missed out, Mr. Weatherby? Uh,
15: Mrs. Hall, you're sitting near the bookcase. I notice you've got several bound volumes of Ivy annuals. Is there one there that includes the annual of
14: 1920? Why, well, yes, I believe there is. Wait, wait, I look to be positive, but uh, I can tell you definitely in a minute. Um, yes, yes, here it is, 1920.
15: Would you mind turning to page uh, 263?
14: Not at all. There. I've got it.
15: Those snapshots were taken in my freshman year at Ivy. Look down at the bottom of the page, Mrs. Hall, at the middle snapshot. Would you mind uh, reading
14: the caption under the picture? Let me see. Uh, here, it says, uh, Weatherby, Weatherby is more fun than Tom Sawyer, but we doubt that he'll ever be a lawyer.
13: Well, I... I didn't realize...
15: You won't find but... my picture among the graduates. During my sophomore year, I left school by academic request.
13: Mr. Weatherby, surely you're not going to force your son into a profession he despises simply because you made a mistake.
15: Dr. Hall, just because Philip has been wasting his time...
13: You have been wasting Philip's time, Mr. Weatherby. It's the same thing as if my father had forced me to be a, a, a veterinarian simply because he had always wanted to be one.
15: <laughs> now, now you're being ridiculous, Doctor. I can't imagine you was anything but a professor or a college president.
13: Can't you? <laughs> here, look, look. Uh, here we are. R- read this, Victoria. The caption under this picture.
14: Hmm. William T. Hall, he'll get there yet. But horse is alive, he ain't no vet. <laughs>
13: It's a bit ungrammatical, I'll admit, but... But, but um... Dr. Hall, you are uh, a vet. Why, that would have been a terrible mistake. Exactly, Mr. Weatherby. Thousands of animals probably owe their lives to the fact that I took up teaching. <laughs> do, you,
16: do
13: you see my point about Philip? Well, I... Yes.
15: Yes. I think maybe I do. I think maybe I do.
14: Toddy, you haven't been out of that chair all evening. Are you feeling all right?
13: It's a very comfortable chair, darling, and I am perfectly all right.
14: Mm. Not even a broken back from burying that one poor unhappy tuba.
13: <laughs> <laughs> no, oh, no, no, I... I'm fine. Don't worry. William. Yes, dear?
14: Did you really take that veteran... Veteran... That horse course? (laughs) I don't remember you telling me about it before.
13: I've been sitting here thinking. Aren't the verses under those annual pictures simply awful?
14: That doesn't answer my question. What question? Tardy, no.
13: Very well. I did not take a veterinary course. <laughs> That's possibly why I never mentioned it.
14: That is a picture.
13: My, well, that was my cousin, William William T. T. For Terence Hall.
14: Oh, you are a fraud! No, not
13: at all. <laughs> if you recall, my dear, I didn't say that I had studied to be a vet. Mr. Weatherby merely jumped to that happy conclusion.
14: Uh, jumped? He was pushed. <laughs> <laughs> no, perhaps yes.
13: For the first time in his life, I found my cousin Terence to be useful.
16: <laughs>
13: I might go so far as to say that I accomplished a difficult task by a relatively simple device. Terence Hall being one of my simpler relatives. <laughs>
14: Well, that ends in the School of Agriculture, or oh, to that effect. Yeah, I'm glad for young Philip.
13: Yes, although just between the two of us, I, I can't understand his choice.
14: Why, Dr. Hall, I'm surprised this morning you spoke in glowing terms of work in a great outdoors. Well,
13: that, that, that was this morning.
14: <laughs>
13: Since then, I've had painful reason to change my mind.
14: <laughs> now it comes out.
13: Yes, my dear. <laughs> well,
14: you can get outside tomorrow and loosen up again. Uh, aren't you going to plant another daily bulb?
13: Well, to put it briefly, my dear, and to quote an old friend, yes, I'm not.
14: <laughs>
13: Let those who will be garden lovers while William sleeps beneath the covers. <laughs> I was curious. I tasted it. Now I know why Schlitz is the largest selling beer in America.
9: No
12: wonder it's the beer that made Milwaukee famous. And here again are Mr. and Mrs. Ronald Coleman. Good night, everyone. Good night. Be sure to see Ronald Coleman's latest picture, Champagne for Caesar. We'll be seeing you next week at this time at the Halls of Ivy starring Mr. and Mrs. Ronald Coleman. The other players were Bill Thompson as Mr. Weatherby and Conrad Binion as Philip. Tonight's script was written by Cameron Blake and Don Quinn. Our music was composed and conducted by Henry Russell. Here's exciting news for Ivy fans. There's a grand story about Mr. and Mrs. Ronald Coleman and the Halls of Ivy in Look Magazine, now on the newsstands. The Halls of Ivy was created by Don Quinn, directed by Nat Wolf and presented by the Joseph of Schlitz Brewing Company of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Coming up, it's The Great Gildersleeve
0: on NBC. That was The Halls of Ivy from June the 7th 1950. The name of that episode was D-Day. You know, we often talk about Ronald Coleman, but Benita Hume is not to be overlooked. She was just a tremendous talent. She had quite a show business career before then. Bonita Hume was uh, born in London, England, on October the 14th in 1906. She was the sister of MGM screenwriter Cyril Hume. She remained in Britain and began her career on the London stage at the age of 17. Two years later, she made her first film in the UK entitled The Happy Ending. That was in 1925. Among her earliest screen credits was 1926's Easy Virtue, which was a uh, screenplay written by Noel Coward, and the film was directed by a very young Alfred Hitchcock. Hume moved to Hollywood in 1932, and she was at her very best in sophisticated roles. Just looking it up, between 1925 and 1938, Hume had 41 motion picture credits. She retired from films in 1938 in order to devote more time to her husband, actor Ronald Coleman. Coleman and Hume, of course, were frequent guests on radio's Jack Benny program. They played Benny's long-suffering next-door neighbors. Halls of Ivy ran from 1950 to 1952, and it became a TV series for one year in 1954. Ronald Coleman uh, died in... May of 1958, and Hume remarried in February of 1959 to an old family friend, actor George Sanders. Apparently, it was a very happy union because they remained together until uh, Benita died herself on November the 1st, 1967, in Edgerton, England. Sadly, just a few years later in 1972, George Sanders took his own life, leaving behind a note saying that he was Bored with Living. Well, hopefully now you know just a little bit more about uh, quite a remarkable individual, Benita Hume.
11: It isn't tied with ribbons or wrapped
18: in cellophane The gift we bring is gratitude expressed in this refrain Oh, we
11: love the halls of life that surround us here.
0: That was the beautiful, lilting theme from the Halls of Ivy. And that one we stole from an episode entitled The Student Actress. And we've played that one in the past, and you can go on the website or into the podcast and and find it. Now we've got another beautiful tune by Eva Cassidy. Now this one was written by Sting, but even he agreed that no one did it better than she did.
18: And you
16: So oh.
0: Time for our episode of Gunsmoke. We've got a really good one tonight. This one originally aired back on the 19th of July in 1954 at 6 p.m. on CBS. This was a script written by John Meston. And it features, of course, William Conrad as Matt. Marley Bear as Chester. Kitty as Georgia Ellis. Howard McNear as Doc. The guest cast tonight is Larry Dobkin as Brayden. Edgar Barrier as Chin. John Daner as Green and Paul Debov as Rab. The name of this episode is The Q, and as always, Mr. Meston has given us a really interesting history lesson, and this one has to do with prejudice toward the Chinese back there in Dodge City and the rest of the country, circa 1860s, 1870s. Let's just look at this uh, whole problem that they were facing back there just for a moment. In the early to mid-1800s, there was a large number of Chinese immigrants that came to the United States. These were mostly unskilled men, laborers, who would work for very little pay. By the year 1851, there were about 25,000 Chinese men working in California, mostly involved in gold mining as a result of the California Gold Rush. But they didn't just mine for gold, they also worked as cooks and peddlers and storekeepers. A lot were domestic workers and laundrymen. In the first decade after the discovery of gold, many had taken jobs that really nobody else wanted. Others considered them too menial, too dirty. But the California gold rush was pretty much over by 1855. During the 1860s, there were 10,000 Chinese involved in the building of the western leg of the Central Pacific Railroad. American attitudes started to turn negative and hostile because these Chinese workers worked for such little pay, and many felt that they couldn't compete with them, and they started developing deep resentments. Many felt that these Chinese rice-eaters, which was a common racial slur of the era, were to blame for their inability to find a good-paying job. As a result, acts of violence erupted against the Chinese. In 1862 alone, 88 Chinese immigrants were reported murdered. For some time, employers such as large landowners, the railroads, big mining concerns, and other large businesses loved hiring the Chinese workers because they could pay them so cheaply. These employers tried to fight off a growing demand for anti-Chinese legislation. But mob violence steadily increased not only against the Chinese, but even the employers. So in the end, the sentiment of the masses prevailed. Laws were passed which prohibited Chinese workers from being employed in one industry after another. Congress actually passed a law forbidding American vessels to transport Chinese immigrants to the U.S., and the Naturalization Act of 1870 restricted all immigration into the U.S. to strictly white persons and persons of African descent. And this law was Aimed directly at prohibiting Chinese people from coming into the United States. And then there was the Chinese Exclusion Act that was passed in 1882 that froze the population of the Chinese community. So the Chinese were actually the first group in the entire world that were deemed ineligible for citizenship in the United States. And they remained that way from 1870 all the way up to 1943. Now, here's what's interesting. In 1860, the ratio of Chinese men to women in the United States was 19 to 1. With all the anti-Chinese legislation, all of the mob riots, all of the things that they had to endure, by 1890, the ratio had widened to 27 to 1. For more than half a century, the Chinese lived in a bachelor society, and the old men always outnumbered the young. Now, as a result of this uh, high male-to-female ratio, two things happened. One, thousands of Chinese immigrants fought to return to China. And two, there was a wave of illegal Chinese immigrants into the United States. So this is what was being faced in this country, including Dodge City, Kansas, back in the 1860s, 1870s. And it's this that John Meston writes about in this very, very enlightening and very dramatic episode of Gunsmoke Tonight, entitled The Cue.
4: Gunsmoke. Around Dodge City and in the Territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers. And that's where the U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gun smoke, starring William Conrad, the transcribed story of the violence
3: that moved west with young America. Shut the door, Chester. It's fly time.
1: Yes, sir, I know, but I think you'd better Shut
3: the door, will you? Mr. Dillon? All right, Chester. Now, what are you so riled up about?
1: Pless, Braden, and Howard Rabb.
3: Braden and Rabb? It's too hot for those two to be causing any trouble, isn't it? Oh, it sure is hot, sir,
1: but that don't bother them. They they get a chance to bully somebody. They do it in the middle of a blizzard.
3: Yeah, we were talking about heat, not cold, Chester. Yes, sir. But don't let that stop you. No, sir. So why don't you start right from the beginning, huh? Yes, yeah, sir. Good.
1: Well, sir, there's a little Chinese fellow with a pigtail and all, a real Chinaman. he just come in to dodge on a freighter's wagon, and uh-huh. right now, Braden and Rab, they got him pushed up against the wall out there.
3: What? Well, what for? What are they doing to him?
1: Well, they're not hurting him, but they're kind of deviling him and poking fun at him, and I don't think they are. I told him to leave him alone. But, Mr. Dillon, I sure do wish you'd go tell him.
6: All right,
3: Chester, I'll go tell him. I do declare if there's anything I
1: hate, it's a bully.
3: Well, maybe they're just curious about him, Chester. I guess he's the first Chinaman that's ever been in Dodge.
1: Mm, wait till you hear him. There they are, yonder. I don't think he understands a word they're saying. He's he, he just backed up there, staring at him and holding tight to that little box he's got. Well,
3: maybe that's what they want.
1: That little box? Well, there couldn't be much in it. Probably just his medicine or something.
3: He's not an Indian, Chester.
1: No, sir, but maybe them Chinese fellas have medicine, too. Look there how he's hanging on to it.
10: <laughs> you sure don't talk very good, do you, Rat? Somebody must have split his tongue. No, Chinese boys always sound like that. Here, now look, fella. I'm just going to ask you once more. What you doing here in Dallas? Me come catch a job. Me all time work hard. Job, huh? Well, you're the first Chinaman I ever seen around here. I sure hope you ain't brought your family with you.
19: No family. One man, one boy, all the same as me. No family.
10: Well, that's one good thing. Why shouldn't the man have
3: a family, Uh, Rab? Oh. Hello, Marshal. Why shouldn't he have a family?
10: Well, you want a lot of Chinamen running around loose here? No,
19: got family. Got cousin, one cousin, San Francisco. Him, very good Chinaman.
3: What's your name, fellow?
19: Chen Long Wong. Me, good boy. Got place... Dodge
10: City, all the time, work hard. Well, you go all the time, work hard in San Francisco, because we sure don't need no Chinamen here.
3: Chen, I'm the Marshal here, and you're welcome in Dodge. You can stay here just as long as you like.
10: What are you mixing in this for, Marshal? Ain't no law says we got to have China boys around here. You ain't got no right protecting him. He's just a dirty foreigner, ain't Except he? Except
3: for the Indians. We're all foreigners here, Brayden. Chen, I told you, you're welcome and you are. And if either one of these men bother you again, you come tell me about it, huh?
10: No fight. Very bad men fight. Whoever heard of the law standing up a china... I don't care I don't... if he's an Eskimo, rap. You leave him alone. Well, look look at that box, Marshal. It's probably full of money he stole
19: somewhere. It's no money. He's be good boy. No steal money. Oh, who's going to believe Get you? Get out
3: of here. What? Both of
10: you, go on. Move.
3: See about this later. I never heard of nothing like
10: it. Nothing like
19: me, very sad, Marshal. Chen, no right, bring trouble.
3: Well, I'll worry about the trouble, Chen. Tell me, uh, what, what kind of work do you do?
19: Me cut a plate. Very good cook. A cook, huh? Uh, what kind of
1: cooking do you do, Chen? All kind, Chinese cook. American cook. All kind. Say, now, I never ate no Chinese food. What's it like? Very good. You see, when I cut a job. You know what, Mr. Dillon? We ought to take him over to the Dodge house. Oh, why? Well, sir, Mr. Green fired the cook he had yesterday. Might be he ain't found another one yet.
3: All right, Chester. Uh, you take him over, huh? I got to do some work back at the office. Okay,
1: sir. You come on along with me, Chan. Very good. We come.
3: And remember what I said about Rab and Braden, Chan. You come tell me if they give you any trouble. <laughs> Mr. Green at the Dodge house took a chance and hired Chen Wong that day. And it turned out he wasn't lying about being a good cook. He was about the best that we'd ever had in Dodge. And neither was he lying about working hard. Mr. Green let him sleep in the storeroom off the kitchen. And there he stayed. Out of sight. And for a while, out of trouble. There was some talk about heathen Chinese and how we didn't need any of them in Dodge, but... Nobody did anything about it. And I was hoping everything was going to be all right. Until one day when I happened to go up to Doc Adams' office just to kill a little time.
1: Oh, hello, Matt. Come in, come in.
3: How are you, Doc?
1: I'll be right with you, man. As I finish with Chen Wong here.
3: Oh? Uh-huh. Oh, well, what's the matter with Chen? There, lying
1: right there. That's what was the matter with him.
3: Oh, you lost the tooth, huh? Well, Chen, you'd have been better off doing the job yourself. Doc's as likely to pull a good one as a bad one.
1: Forgiveness isn't one of your greatest virtues, is it, man?
3: You know, I lost a perfectly good tooth that day, Doc, and you still charge me for it.
1: And why not? I took the bad one out, too, didn't I? Oh, yeah,
3: sure, finally, once you got sobered up.
1: When I got sobered, oh, I had been 48 hours without sleep. Uh I delivered two babies. 30 miles apart, too, and in the dead of winter. Oh, I should have let your jaw go on, Aiken. Might have taught you a lesson.
3: What kind of a lesson, doctor?
1: Humility.
3: Well, I always figured I was a pretty humble man.
1: Oh, yes, you did. You, humble. Oh, oh, you're about as humble as a Bronco Apache. <laughs> there you are, Chin. I'm true. But you better let
19: me take a look at that a day or too. Thank you, Doctor. I'll come back. How much do I owe you? Five dollars. May I pay you next time? You See, I won't get my salary from Mister Green until Saturday, and I have no money except for that. Why, sure, Chen.
1: Of course, any oh,
3: <laughs> Chen, the first time I saw you, you were you were being a very good Chinese boy all time, working hard, catching job, that kind of a thing.
19: Is that not how a Chinese is supposed to talk, Marshal?
3: <laughs> well, I thought it was till just now.
19: Most of my countrymen do talk like that, Marshal. English is a very difficult language for
3: Well, what about you?
19: I was more fortunate than most. When I first came to America, I worked for a man who was very kind. He taught me and made me study and practice several hours
3: every day. I see. But uh, why were you talking the other way when I first saw you?
19: Experience has taught me that many men resent a Chinese who does not talk the way they expect him to. I wish to avoid trouble.
6: Uh,
1: Chin's on his way to China, Matt. He's going home soon as he can save up enough money for his passage.
19: Oh, is that right? Well, I wish you luck, Chin. Thank you, Marshal. I must get back to work now. Good day, gentlemen.
1: (laughs) So long, Chin. So long. Ah. uh... He's a nice fellow, isn't he?
3: Yeah, he is, Doc.
1: You know, I believe him about being broke,
3: too. Oh, why shouldn't you?
1: Well, haven't you heard? Heard what? Why, that Pless, Braden, and Howard Rabb, they've been saying Chen's got lots of money. They say he keeps it hid in that little box here. his. Huh?
3: No. no, I hadn't heard that, Doc. Mm.
1: Well, I don't believe a word of it. I think he's broke, just like he says.
3: Well, it doesn't matter much. Why, what do you mean? Well, that kind of talk going around, he's going to be in trouble. There are men besides Braden and Rabb who'd murder Chen for his money and not even think it was a crime.
10: Yes, I suppose you're right, Matt.
3: I'd better go have a talk to Chen, Doc. I'll see you later. I had a talk with Chen. Tried to get him to put his box in the bank and then let everybody know that he'd done so. But he said he wanted the box near him and that he'd keep it hidden in his room. I couldn't argue him out of it and I knew there'd be trouble. And sure enough, a couple of days later it happened. Though not the way I'd expected it was noon, and Chester and I were headed for the Dodge House to have a little dinner. Mr. Dillon,
1: you know what old Teeters has went and done?
3: No, what, Chester?
1: He has started charging 30 cents
3: for a haircut. Oh? Huh?
1: Now, can't something be done about that?
3: <laughs> well, I can think of one thing, Chester. What's that? Let your hair grow. Oh, hello, Marshal. Hello, John. Let my hair
1: grow and look like a buffalo hunter. Hey, the restaurant looks mighty deserted, Mr. Dillon.
3: Well, yeah, maybe it's closed today. Let's find out.
1: Mm. There's Mr. Green.
10: Hello, Green. You closed today? Hello, Marshal. Chester. Hello, Mr. Green. I'm closed, Marshal. I haven't got a cook. What? Trin. He won't cook today. No, I don't know what's the matter with him. He won't even talk. Well, where is he? Sitting in his room back there on the floor. Just sitting there and staring at his hands. Maybe he's sick. No, no, he isn't sick. But there's something wrong with him. Maybe you can find out where it is, Marshal. He might talk to you. Okay, I'll try. Uh, you better stay here. Just All right. It's the storeroom, right off the kitchen, Marshal. Door's open. Yeah, okay, I'll find it. Thanks.
3: Hello, Chen.
19: Hello, Marshal.
3: Uh... Can I come in? I'd like to talk to you. I'm in. What's the matter, Chen? Are you sick? No. Huh. Uh, Tell me something, Chen. What, Marshal? Do you consider me a friend? I believe you are. Good. Well, then maybe you'll let me help you. In what way? Well, I don't know. You're going to have to tell me what's wrong first. It would be difficult
19: for you to understand, Marshal. Well, maybe,
3: but tell me anyway.
19: I am Chinese, Marshal. I have lived many years in America, but I am still Chinese.
3: Yeah. Well, go on.
19: Years ago, my country was overrun by a tribe of papas called the Manchus. As they took each city, they required the inhabitants To shave around their heads, leaving only a long strand of hair to be braided into a queue. It was a sign of subjugation, but that has been forgotten. And now the queue, or pigtail as you call it, is of great
3: importance to us. Wait a minute, Chen. I just noticed. Where's yours?
19: To lose the queue is a great disgrace to us,
3: Marshal. Yeah, I've heard that. Well... Who did it, Chen? Two men. The same two. Braden and Rab. They came here last night. They wanted my treasure box. And you wouldn't tell them where it is, so they cut off your pigtails, did it?
19: They took it away with them, Marshal. That makes my disgrace even worse.
3: Ah. Chen, I think maybe I understand how you feel about this. Uh, would it help any if I get it back for you?
19: I am a peaceful man, Marshal... But if I do not get
3: it back, I must kill those two. No. No, now, don't you go killing anybody. you let me handle this, huh? I'm very sorry, Marshal, for all the trouble. You wait here, Chen. I'll see what I can do. Find them, Chester? Yes,
1: sir. They're in there, Mr. Dillon. Standing over at the bar. Good. Place is about empty except for Braden and Rab. Are they drunk? I don't know. I didn't talk to them.
3: There they are. Yeah.
10: Well... It ain't hey, Marshal Dillon. Hey, you gonna buy us a drink, eh, hey, Marshal? I thought I
3: told you men to stay away from Chen Wang.
10: Chen Wong? Well, now what's you yelling about? His pigtail. He wants it back. I don't know what you're talking about, Marshal. We ain't seen Chen since the day he first come here. You he went
3: to his room last night, didn't Chen cut off his pigtail when he wouldn't tell you where his treasure box no, was? No, he
10: didn't, Marshal. I don't even know where his room is. Chen's been lying to you, Marshal. All them heathen foreigners is liars. I want that pigtail, right Now, where is it? I don't know nothing about it, I tell you. What are you standing up for him for? He ain't even a citizen. I don't care what he is. I'm standing up for him. Well, it wasn't us. Honest, Marshal. We didn't do it.
3: Well, maybe I ought to beat the truth out of you, huh?
10: We're telling you the truth now, Marshal. I don't
3: believe you. Now, you get that pigtail back to Chen or you're in trouble.
19: What do you mean, trouble?
3: You'll find out when it's too late. And there's nothing I can do to stop it. I went back to Chen and tried to explain things to him. He didn't say much, but I could see that his mind was made up. And so I told him what would happen if he killed anybody. But that didn't bother him. He said he'd kill himself when it was over. And then I got mad at him for being so stubborn. And I was sorry for it right away. I guess he figured I didn't understand after all. So I left him, feeling pretty helpless. Well, that night he made his first move. I found out about it at the Texas Trail, where I dropped in to say hello to Kitty.
8: It sure has been a long day, Matt. I'm worn out, and I got the whole night ahead of me yet. Oh, what happened today, Kitty? Oh, Sam over there got the bright idea of offering every other drink on the house to any soldier that walked in here.
3: (laughs) Well, that's one way of keeping this saloon full.
8: Sure is. If he goes on, I might as well move out to Fort Dodge and join the Army. I think it'd be easier.
3: You know something? I think they'd be glad to have you, Kitty.
8: I mean as a soldier. Hey,
3: that's an idea. Lady soldiers.
8: There are darn few jobs women couldn't
3: do. Anywhere.
10: Marshal Dillon. Marshal. What's on your mind, Rap? That, uh, that Chinaman, that's what. He's haunting us, me and Braden. And if he don't stop it, I'm, I'm going to put a bullet in him. What do you mean, he's haunting you? Well, all afternoon he's been following us. Wherever we go, he just stands around, staring at us. Drives a man crazy after a while. I'm warning you, Marshal. I'm going to shoot him.
8: Good. Then I can come to your hanging.
10: What's the matter with her, anyway? Rab, I told you before to give Chen back his pigtail.
3: He won't bother you if you do.
10: You still believe him, don't you, Marshal? Yeah, I believe him. It's a fine thing when a U.S. Marshal takes the word of a stinking, dirty little... Shut sh- up! <laughs> then
3: get out of here, Rab.
10: Go on. All right. I'm going.
8: Matt, you better do something about that. I'll kill Ken, sure.
3: Unless he kills them first, Kitty. And I'll go tell Chester to keep an eye on him. I'll see you later.
8: Sure. Sure. <laughs>
1: Yes, I sure am. Sorry, Mr. Dillon. Where did
10: you lose them, Chester?
1: Well, sir, they was in the alley for gangs having a drink, and I was watching them like you told me. Then a fellow come up to me and we started talking, and next time I looked, they was gone. All three of them.
3: So I come after you. Well, we'll find them.
1: Yes, sir. I sure do hope so. Ken was carrying his little box, Mr. Dillon, right under his arm, and he. Hey, look over there. What? What's everybody crowding up the alley for? Well,
3: let's go see.
16: Oh, all
1: right, fellas. Let the marshal through here now. All right. Stand back, everybody. You stand Clyde, aside, Clyde stand back. Oh,
3: Mister Dillon, it's Chan. Yeah. He's been strangled, Chester. Strangled. With his pigtail. <laughs> yeah, they gave it back to him. All right.
10: Hey, look there. It's a
1: knife.
10: Got blood all over it, too. Yeah, give it to
3: me. It's a butcher knife. Chen must have cut one of them. Maybe both. Well,
1: that'll make it easier to crack them.
3: Yeah. How do you men stay here? I don't want anybody following us. You understand? All right, come on, Chester. Easy now. They may be waiting for us. Yeah,
1: There's something laying over there by that rain
16: barrel. Huh? It's a man.
3: Yeah. That's Howard Rab, Chester. Looks like Chen cut him up pretty bad. Is he dead? Yeah, he's dead. Well, now let's find Braden.
10: Chester. Oh, Go on back, Marshal. You ain't gonna take me.
1: He's out by that shed there, Mr. Dillon.
3: Yeah. Now look, you stay here, Chester, and keep down. I'm gonna crawl up to where I can see him.
1: I'll yell at him a little to keep his attention. Okay. You ain't got a chance, Braden. we shooting, Brayden. You must be awful scared. Did Sam get his knife into
16: you, too? You
3: stand up, Chester. I'll be happy to kill you. All right, drop your
13: gun,
16: Brayden. No, no. Ah, oh.
10: Okay, Chester. Did you kill
3: him? Yeah, I killed him.
1: Well, sir, I guess you had to. Now,
3: uh, there's Chen's treasure box, Chester. Pick it up, will you?
10: Here it
9: is, sir.
1: I guess that's what they killed him for. Must be full of money after all.
3: Yeah, let's take a look.
1: Yes, sir, by golly, it is
3: money. Yeah, this much is money, Chester. Four dollars. Four dollars? Is that all? Yeah, that's all.
1: What's that other paper?
3: Strike a match, Chester, will you? Hold it over here. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, looks like kind of a document, don't it? What's it say? And
3: I can't see it very well. Yeah. Something about Chen Lang Wong was of invaluable service, intelligence, General McClellan's Army of the Potomac. Peninsular Campaign, March 1862. In recognition. something, something, something. Chen Lang Wong is hereby granted full citizenship of the United States. And Ulysses S. Grant, president.
1: Well,
3: I'll be doggone. Yeah, looks like Chen wasn't exactly a foreigner after all, doesn't it? Poor little fellow. Chester.
16: Yes, sir?
3: I'm going to take this letter out to Colonel Mast at Fort Dodge. I I got an idea he might want to give Chen Wong a military burial. Oh, that'd be fine. And while I'm gone, you can drag these other two off and... Draw him in a hole on Boot Hill.
4: Under the direction of Norman McDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Tonight's story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Featured in the cast were Edgar Barrier, Lawrence Dobkin, Paul Dubov, and John Daner. Harley Bear is Chester, Howard McNair is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Join us again next week as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal, fights to bring law and order out of the wild violence of the West in Gunsmoke. At this same time, Chesterfield will bring you another story of the western frontier on Gunsmoke. This is the CBS Radio Network.
0: John Meston was really good at teaching lessons using his stories. And really, there's no better way to teach someone than by the use of a great story. That's going to kick things in the head for another week. Don't worry, we'll be back in two weeks. We'll do it all over again. And I know that uh, the shows we select next time will be every bit as good as as the shows we selected this time. Old Time Radio. Man, I love it. This is Bob Bro. I'm so glad you stopped by. And I'm so glad you met me.
19: Wait, let me, let me explain something to you. Um, I am
1: not Mr. Lebowski. You're Mr. Lebowski. I'm the dude. Life moves
13: pretty fast.
1: You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it.